So many good lines and songs we sang this morning, aren't there? I mean, we could do a little reflection service right now, I imagine, and just say, what was one line that was so good to sing this morning? Uh, this service, uh, boy, that line, um, that just escaped me because we just sang this other great song. Um, it was in uh, Not In Me, um, Merciful, oh, and my God is merciful to me and merciful in Christ alone. Man, I've sung that a number of times and this deeper understanding again that, oh yeah, God is merciful to me. I can count on that. And it's grounded in something that doesn't change in Christ alone. So God will be merciful to me because Christ alone. So many lines. Um, but this hymn uh, that, that we sang this new chorus with, but I've been a Christian since about the fourth grade. I grew up in the church from that time on. I, I was trying to think how many times I've sung All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. I mean, how many times, Tom, do you think you've sung? <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of times. April, put that slide up there for a second. First verse of All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. And still, um, do we understand the the weight of what we're singing. Let's just unpack this again. All hail. Everybody everywhere. All hail. Hail is a word that we think of like hail Caesar, right? Crowd shouting hail Caesar. Enthusiastically acclaim and extol uh, and praise and exalt and submit yourself to the, the kingship, the authority of, right? Everyone everywhere do that. And in case we're unclear on what everyone means, that means angels to let angels prostrate fall, not just in the physical realm that God has created, but spiritual beings, every living being, thinking being that can relate to God and understand him and know him, hail him, right? Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord. Crown who Lord? Jesus Lord. Crown him. We've been in the gospel of Mark now, and we're to crown Jesus, the, the, the baby who was born in, in Bethlehem in a stable, Lord, and the man of Nazareth, and the carpenter's son, and Mary's boy, and the one who eats with tax collectors and sinners, and touches lepers, and stops for little Women, women who are desperate in their, their, their physical need and, and, and doctors can't help them and, and yet he stops and, and, and this Jesus who stops and, and, and forgives sin and comforts and heals, we're singing, everybody everywhere crown him as Lord of all, not as Lord of some, not as ruler of, of, of certain tribes and certain people groups and certain cultures, but over every nation on earth, the ruler and the sovereign Lord. And when I sing this song, I think it's, does Jesus already have that crown? Is, is Jesus already crowned king? Yes, right? So then why do we sing this hundreds and hundreds of times? We sing, this is one of those hymns we sing to one another, right? We're not addressing God directly. We're singing, crown him Lord of all. We're singing this to one another. So we're saying crown him. So what does it mean to crown Jesus Lord if he already is, is Lord of all? What does that mean? You can interact here. <laughs> Acknowledge. Acknowledge?
to agree with it, right? He is king, but when you crown him Lord, you are actually getting in line. You're acting as though he's Lord, right? One of the other verses says, to him all majesty ascribe. Ascribe majesty. You ascribe majesty to him, right? Ralph, crown him Lord of all, right? And Seth and me and Mark and, and Mary is saying to one another, crown him Lord of all. Bend your knee. Prostrate yourselves before Jesus, and the Gospel of Mark is interesting. It's broken up really in like two halves. The first eight chapters that we're still in, Mark just keeps hammering the same point. Jesus is king. This man from Nazareth is king. He is Lord of all. And then at the end of chapter eight, we're going to see this dramatic shift now in the storyline. And it's going to say this king who's Lord of all, who everything is subject to, he's going to subject himself to the cross that's why we call our, calling our series The King and the Cross. So we're still in the first half of Mark where, where it's, Mark just really wants us to know Jesus is King. He's Lord of all. And we understand this, and yet we don't understand this. And all these crowds are beginning to understand this, and yet in many ways they still really don't understand this. And in our passage today in Mark 6, um, even his disciples understand, but they don't understand. Let me give you an illustration of how we can understand who a person is and yet still really functionally not get it. Um, I'll tell you about my father-in-law. My father-in-law is named Jim Collins, and uh, Betsy, my wife, is an only child, and so she, uh, she was uh, raised in a military home. He was an Army and then Army Reserves man, started uh, 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 serving in Vietnam, stationed in Schofield Barracks on Hawaii as a, a young married man, and ended up retiring after 40 years as a general, two-star general. I mean, Significant. This is, he was an important guy, right? I mean, two stars. Uh, his final uh, post was commanding officer of Fort Douglas, which is in Salt Lake City. And his last four years there at Salt Lake City was when the Winter Olympics were going on. And he was, his troops were involved with security and orchestrating two weeks of craziness of all the nations coming and competing for two weeks. And the first uh, star that he was pinned with happened the week I, I proposed to Betsy. Talk about this you know, wake up of uh, who your future father-in-law is going to be. On a Friday, popped the question. She said yes. Um, we were excited. We drove down to Camp Pendleton area where, where, they, where they lived. And there was a ceremony on a Saturday for him getting his first star pin, Brigadier General. And uh, his, uh, uh, Jim and his wife Ann and, and Betsy and I, we drive up to this parade field at Camp Pendleton. And we get out of the car and we come walking in or into this area. And I realize there's like hundreds of soldiers all standing on the hot asphalt at attention in formation like this, just drip, you know, dripping sweat in their dress uniform, um, just not moving. And the you know, crowd's sitting there, and there's this stage and this, this sort of seats of honor up there. And I sit in my spot, and they go up on the dais. And, and when he finally takes the, the podium and stands before all these troops, and he salutes them and says, at ease, and they all go like this. And he gives a speech. I remember sitting there like, this is about to be my father-in-law, right? I mean, he is important. And he went on, yeah, so he went on to, he was uh, in Desert Storm, and he was responsible for um, thousands of troops and equipment and tanks and machinery and getting them off ships uh, onto land and back on safely and in working order. I mean, this guy is important, and he is competent and capable, right? And I understood this, and I, and I, I understand it even more now than I used to. Now... Why is it that I can go on family vacation 
with the Collins. And in my mind, I can second guess how he wants to pack the back of the car. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's a real example. We've gone to, you know, like go ski up at Brianhead where they have a cabin. And he's like loading the car in my mind. I'm thinking, you know, that's probably not the best way to do this. Right. And, and I'm actually, you know, sort of taking issue with him or we'll be on a family vacation. And he's kind of planning out how, how we should, you know, organize our time. And he's leading us. Right. And in my mind, I'm like, that's foolish. Right. I mean, and, and I'll have these moments. I'll stop. And I'm like, I think this guy's got this, right? So think about understanding. On one hand, I understand, but there's a functional sort of understanding that right in that moment, I don't actually treat him and, and expect all of who he is. You know, I don't respond to him that in, in an appropriate way, and I'll stop and go, oh yeah, I still don't really understand. There's a kind of understanding that begins to change the way I just relate to a person, right? Well, the same is going on with Jesus here. And in Mark 6, you can turn there, we get these two miracle accounts that we're going to look at today. And after these two miracles occur is this really sobering statement. Look at Mark 6, verse 51 and 52. The second miracle is that Jesus actually walks out to the disciples in a boat as they're rowing into the wind on water. It's not a trick. He's not on a sandbar. He didn't happen to be walking on the shore, but from their perspective, it kind of looked like, no, Mark wants us to know Jesus walked on water. And this is their response. It says, they were utterly astounded. And then Mark says, it's because they didn't understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. In other words, utterly astounded isn't sort of a positive, wow, that was awesome, Jesus. It's more of a reaction of, how did you do that? And Mark says, the reason that their response was, wait a minute, that didn't just happen was because they didn't understand. There was a level of understanding that they still didn't have about who Jesus was. They understood he did miracles, and yet there wasn't this sort of understanding and trust that changed their expectations of who he was. And this was even after that they'd gone out and they'd actually performed miracles in his name. We saw in the passage last week, right? Moyer preached on it. He sends them out in pairs, and, and they actually do miracles in Jesus' name. And this is after this. They still don't understand. Their hearts are still hardened, and they're slow. And, and what struck me as, we, as I study this passage is so are we. We are really slow to understand who Jesus is. So, outline for this morning. Three lessons about Jesus that we are slow to learn. We're slow to learn the same things that the 12 were. In fact, we have less excuse because we have seen more of Jesus than they have even at this point, right? We understand the cross and the resurrection, and we understand the book of Acts and the early church and what God did through his spirit. And the, we have so much more evidence of who Jesus is than they do, and they were slow to understand. We're still slow to understand. And these miracles and what Jesus does and says helps us. So that's our outline. Three things about Jesus we're slow to learn. Let's read the first scene, the first story, and take the first two. Mark 6.30. The background is they've just come back from being sent out two by two, teaching with the, G the authority of Jesus and authority over unclean spirits and casting out demons from people and healing just like Jesus. And verse 30 says, The apostles return... To Jesus, and they told him all that they'd done and they'd taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. 
And they went away in the boat to a desolate place. The second time he says that desolate, that means no people there, right? It doesn't mean desert, but it means no people, hopefully, <laughs> to, uh, by themselves. Verse 33, now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns, and they got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. The hour's now late. Send them away to the surrounding countryside and villages and to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. They said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it them, to them to eat? And he said, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. Well, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties. And, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Talk about an understated verse here. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces into the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men, Mark says. One of the other gospels says, I'm not counting women and children. So maybe 10,000, 15,000, maybe more if, if there are women and children there in this great crowd. Two things in, in this. Number one, lesson that we're slow to learn is this, is that Jesus is the compassionate good shepherd, the unique compassionate good shepherd. Not just he's a good shepherd, he's a good leader, but uniquely he is the good shepherd that God promised he was going to raise up for the people of Israel, and for all the people that the nation of Israel was going to bless. That's Jesus. Let's walk back through the story. Verse 30. So they come back, and I, I picture they're high-fiving each other. I mean, if they did high-fiving back then, they're excited, right? In verse 30, they come back and report all that they'd done and taught. So the assumption is they had done a lot and taught a lot, and they're swapping stories, and they're probably comparing, going, remember that one time that Jesus did? It was like that for me. That happened. This guy was crazy. Like that guy back at the tombs, we had one of those, right? Me and whoever, you know, and, and he came out and the guy was in his right mind and just like Jesus, right? They, they reported all that they were able to do and teach and they're exhausted, Jesus, uh, Mark tells us. And so Jesus says, you need rest. You need refreshment. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna retreat here from people. He says, uh, let's go to a desolate place. Come away. Their batteries were on empty. It says that they had people, so many people had been coming and going that they hadn't even had leisure to eat, which we read a few chapters back. That was happening with Jesus, right? He was skipping meals because he just kept ministering to people. So Jesus says, pause, let's get in the boat. Let's go to a place where there's no people. You know that feeling where you're just desperate to be away from people? 
all our women who are at the women's retreat this week <laughs> have had two days of that's why they went, right? Some of you ladies in the room are like, I wish I would have gone. But uh, this is them. Jesus takes them away to get away from people. And verse 33 says it's unsuccessful. There are people who saw them go. They weren't sneaky enough getting into the boat. And, uh, and they see, and they see where they're headed. And they go, oh, I think I know. We're, we had them off. And they start running, it says. And as they run, people from all the towns between here and where they end up, so the crowd, I imagine, just keeps getting bigger. They're running through the village, and people are saying, where are you going? Jesus. Oh, and they all, you know, and they, so they just keep getting bigger, and they finally get there, and they're waiting on the shore, verse 34, when the boat pulls in. And they're met by, verse 34, he went ashore and he saw not a desolate place, but a great crowd. Pause. If this was you pulling into shore, what would the next line read? <laughs> right. When, when, let's just read it. Imagine yourselves here. And when Gerald went ashore, he saw not a desolate place, not a retreat center, a camp with a cup of coffee waiting for him and nobody around. He saw a great crowd and he got back in the boat. <laughs> How 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 would you feel in that? How would that how would your what would your response be? You saw the great crowd and you what, Ron? You're shaking your head. I would turn the boat. Yeah, turn the boat. Yeah, Rick Floyd last week at La Mirada said I wouldn't even hit the shore in the first place. I would have seen that coming and back you know back paddle. But let out a sigh. You know, I was thinking about a story when, when Betsy and I came home from China with Lily May, our our oldest daughter that we had adopted. We had had, you know, over like almost 30 hours of flight travel time and all this. And we had been sick just before coming home. And we get home and, and the Tuckers had a reception, breakfast reception for us at their house on top of that. And we finally got home and finally got our little baby girl in bed. And we laid down, I mean, about as bone weary as I have ever been. I tried to imagine if we, I can still imagine that feeling. We laid down and it was so quiet and, and she was asleep. And we're like, oh. I can just imagine if we, we had just done it and it was... You know, and it was someone from Grace saying, hey, you know, problem, do you, you have an hour? I'm, you know, that sort of feeling, I just would have groaned, right? Well, Jesus hits the shore, comes ashore, and it says he had compassion on them. Literally, he, he felt for them in, the, in his guts. His heart went out to this crowd. And what he saw that made him forget how hungry and tired he was was this. It says, he had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's why he forgot about how hungry and tired he was. He saw the crowd and they were like sheep without a shepherd. What exactly does this mean? What is it? What, in what way are these crowds like sheep without a shepherd? Well, Matthew's gospel actually uses that phrase. It says Jesus saw uh, these crowds and, and adds this phrase. He saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's what it is about these crowds that Jesus sees. They were harassed and they were helpless. There's a number of places in the Old Testament that talk about, uh, use language about God's people being in this sort of shape, like sheep without a shepherd. But Ezekiel 34 is probably the clearest one. And I want us to go back there because I, I really think Mark wants us to understand that Jesus here is fulfilling this promised role of good shepherd that God had said he was going to send. Turn back to Ezekiel 34. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, if you're trying to find it right there. Ezekiel 34. 
probably the clearest description of what sort of spiritual leadership Jesus is looking at when he sees these crowds. Let's read the first six verses. The shepherds, the, the spiritual leaders of Israel are getting called out. God is, through Ezekiel, calling them on their utter failure to lead his people, his sheep. And listen to what he says, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel says. He said, Son of man, I want you to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you've not strengthened. The sick you've not healed. The injured you've not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you've not sought. And with force and harshness you've ruled them. And so they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. That phrase, every high hill, it's talking about all these other hills around that didn't have the temple. It had other shrines and altars and temples to other idols and false gods. And, and what he's saying is because of the way you've shepherded, my sheep have scattered to all other gods and all other idols and they've abandoned me, God says. He says, my sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Spiritual leaders were feeding and caring for themselves and neglecting the sheep. And as a result, all the sheep were just wandering. God's people were wandering. And just like those bad shepherds, I think Jesus is seeing these crowds and recognizing these crowds have the same kind of shepherd. So Ezekiel said, shepherds who don't strengthen the weak and heal the sick and bind up the injured. And I think of Mark 3. Right? There's this man with a withered hand in the synagogue and Jesus is there and he sees him and his heart goes out to him and he's going to heal him, right? This poor man whose, whose hand is, is, is crippled and, 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 and no doubt affects his whole life and Jesus moves toward him to heal. And where are the shepherds of Israel in that scene? What are they doing? They don't care about it. They're not saying, oh, bless Jesus. He's going he's to fix this man's hand. No, they're actually watching Jesus to see if he heals this guy on the Sabbath, we can nail him for breaking a, one of our traditions, right? They don't care about this man. Jesus does. Ezekiel said these shepherds are the kind of shepherds who don't go after those who are, being, are scattering and straying from the Lord. And it made me think of Levi, the tax collector in Matthew uh, two, or Mark 2, right? He, he's sitting at the booth collecting taxes, still in his vocation that is, is being a traitor to his own people and has made him despised and one of those sinner types that no one should associate with. And in the act of doing it, Jesus goes up to him at the booth and says, hey, come follow me. And he does. He gets up and he leaves his, his sinful vocation and he goes and he has a meal and a feast in his home with all these other tax collectors with Jesus. And while that meal is going down, where are the shepherds of Israel? Out there across the street, they're sort of peeking in the windows with their eyebrows raised going, Jesus, how could he be a holy man here if he's eating with those type of people, Right? And the punchline is, they are more those type of people than the guys Jesus is eating with, right? Because they don't even get it. The shepherds of Israel, they're not going out trying to rescue 
they're putting themselves up here above and just shaking their heads at, at these sheep who have scattered. And then Ezekiel says, shepherds who rule with force and harshness. And we're going to get there. In fact, next week, Eric's going to be preaching in Mark 7, and we're going to see you know, some more indictments of the spiritual leaders of Israel. But this was the sort of thing they were doing. Matthew 23, Jesus says, these, these are leaders who preach, but they don't practice. They tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. In other words, these spiritual leaders are, are creating a, a culture where all the people feel like to be righteous in a way that God could be for me and love me is unattainable. They see the outward behavior of these Pharisees that seems impeccable and perfect, and the crowds just feel helpless, right? I'll never be like them. Meanwhile, they don't even practice what they preach, right? They're just tying up burdens and putting them on the people. And Jesus keeps seeing these crowds like this. Hold on, we, we missed one thing in Ezekiel. Go back to Ezekiel 34. And it was this, what God had promised he was going to do one day for all of his sheep who don't have a shepherd. Look at verse 11. He says, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I'll seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I'll rescue them from all the places they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and I'll bring them into their own land and I will feed them. On the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country, I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land. Are you getting the picture? <laughs> and on rich pasture they will feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I'll destroy. I'll feed them in justice. And look down to verse 23. He says, I'll set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. I'm going to raise up another shepherd king, sort of like David, but better. And he will be their king and their shepherd. And he'll rescue and he'll feed them. And so I think as Jesus see, keeps seeing these crowds, these great crowds, they're helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And he understands, I am this good shepherd. This is why I've come. And so when he hits the shore, unlike all of us who are going to go the other way or groan or curse under our breath or just, uh, Jesus has compassion and it trumps his exhaustion. And it says, moved by this great need, feeling compassion, he feeds the sheep. And how does he do it? How does he do it here? Look at verse 34. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Notice something here. The miracle of multiplying loaves and feeding thousands isn't what Jesus does to respond to the great crowds in compassion. What he does isn't in responding to the sheep without a shepherd is he teaches them. 
That's how he feeds his sheep. He spends the whole day. How is he going to help them, lead them out from helpless and harassed into freedom and at rest? It's not with loaves. It's going to be with truth. And he spends the whole day teaching them many things, it says. Things like what we read tonight, no doubt. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden's light. Jesus is saying, you know, you, know, you know what the sheep need? To hear this, leave your sin, confess your sin, turn to me, believe in me, trust in me, follow me. I have authority to forgive sin. I have the, uh, the power to give you strength and rest and make you whole. And the reason he can say, I can forgive your sin and take away the guilt is because his being a good shepherd isn't stopping with just skipping a meal to teach and feed the sheep. He is going to lay down his life for the sheep. The ultimate act of Jesus as good shepherd isn't feeding thousands of people from no, out of nothing. It's laying down his own life to pay for their sin and rising again. This is Jesus. He's the good compassionate shepherd. And it said the disciples were slow to understand this. We're slow to understand this. We know it. We sing songs. We get it to some degree, maybe. But functionally, do we understand this? How many times does our, our, our behavior and the way we respond to God and the way we pray or don't pray and the way we worship or don't worship or the way that we fret or worry or rest and experience peace betrays how much we understand that Jesus is the compassionate good shepherd. So that's first lesson, slow to learn. Number two, because the story goes on, Jesus isn't limited by our lack He's not limited by our insufficiency and what we lack. So the story continues. So he's teaching all day long and it's getting dark and they're in a desolate place. There's no Chick-fil-A's around they can run off to. And, and the disciples are probably f- feeling really hungry because, again, they hadn't been eating. And so they're like looking at their watches or whatever, they, sundials on their wa- wrist. And, and uh, they come up to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, Jesus. Just send the crowds away to go find their own food, which is funny to me because, especially after reading Ezekiel 34, because Jesus is here feeding his sheep, having compassion, and they come up, Jesus, can you just go send the sheep away to go find their own food? And Jesus sees an opportunity here to teach them something. He says, you give them something to eat. And I think the reason has to do with verse 30. They've just come back from actually feeding the sheep just like Jesus, right? In pairs, they have gone out teaching and doing things in Jesus' name with his authority and power, and they've just come back and they're like, we did it. And right here, he's about to to, to perform a miracle so that they are very clear that he is going to feed his sheep through them no matter how insufficient. He wants them to know how insufficient they are to feed his sheep and that he can feed them despite their insufficiency. And so he pulls this up. He says, you give him something to eat, literally. And they get sarcastic on him, right? They're like, okay, so let me just get this straight. So what you're suggesting, Jesus, if I'm, if I'm not misunderstanding, is we spend 200 days worth of, of uh, wages to go and scrounge up, even if it's around, enough bread that all these people can have some bread. That's your plan? It's kind of like Jesus says, well, no, that would be silly. Um, my plan is uh, go and see how much we, food we have on hand. Where are they? Desolate place, right? And he says, okay, just, just go see how much we have. 
So they indulge him. They actually go and see, it says. And it says, when they found out they, they came back, I can't imagine there wasn't maybe a little, uh, <laughs> I told you so in their voice. Uh, they're like, Jesus, we counted. You want to know how much we have? Five. <laughs> That's how much we have. We have five. We have five little flat pitas or whatever and two little pieces of fish. One kid was willing to give up his lunch. That's what we got. Sort of like, now will you send them out to go feed themselves? And he just rolls with it, right? He does it. He goes, okay, good. Okay, good. Now just have everyone get in groups. Imagine they're like, he's, he, when is he going to go, ah, just kidding, you know, gotcha, you did it, you know. They just, okay, and so they start getting everyone in groups. And notice it says, he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. There's something, I think, there where Mark is wanting us to say, pay attention, Jesus. is Jesus is making these crowds of helpless sheep all lie down, on, sit down on the green grass, and he's about to feed them. I, I think that Mark intends us to be thinking of Jesus in these terms. He's about to feed his sheep. And then he makes it really clear where the food's about to come from. He takes the loaves and the fish, and he looks up to heaven, and he blesses them visibly. And then he says oh, to the 12, he says, okay, breaks up the bread, and he gives them each some, and breaks up the fish and gives them each some. He says, okay, go pass that out, and then come back when, you, when you're out. And so they obviously do, and verse 42 says, and they all ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full uh, of broken pieces and of fish. So three details there that Mark really wants us to get how how ridiculous Jesus provides. Number one, they all ate. So thousands, 15,000, maybe more people uh, ate. Second, they didn't all just get a crumb. It says they were all satisfied. That word means full, right? They had food baby at the end. That's what my, our family calls it. When you eat and you're like, oh man, I should have quit with like one, you know, just one, you know, one bite less. And they're all sitting on the grass satisfied and full. And not just that, but every disciple comes back with leftovers. I think that's the significance of 12 baskets. The point is, not one disciple didn't get the lesson. Oh, that's too many negatives in there. Every disciple got the lesson. Some of them didn't come back and go, that was close, Jesus, because I'm out, right? Every one of them came back going, I got more. I got, everyone says I have more, right? Even Judas had leftovers, He's not limited by what we lack. He's teaching them a lesson about the real feeding of the sheep that he's come to do and intends to do through them and then through his church, right? Yes, Jesus can produce physical bread like that and feed this whole crowd, but we don't see him doing that all through the Gospels. What we do see him doing is feeding his sheep, teaching his sheep, and then using his disciples to, to feed his sheep. And he wants them to get this point. And I think that's why he starts with the loaves and fish, right? Jesus could have just said at the, at the kid's lunch, oh, okay, never mind. I got this, right? And rolled up his sleeves and just did it. But he makes a point of starting with the ridiculous little amount that they have to prove a point. It doesn't matter how insufficient you what you have is. I'm going to feed my people with it. And he's saying, same thing. Do you get it? When I sent you out in pairs, you were just as insufficient as you were there with five loaves and two fish. And I sent my people through you. Do you get it? There's one point where Paul is talking in one of his letters about um, what he's been entrusted with as, as someone who Jesus has called to, to feed his sheep and teach and, and, and rescue his, his sheep uh, who are scattered. And he says, who is sufficient for these things? Answer is no one, right? We're not. And the point of this miracle is Jesus is sufficient and he has chosen to use our total insufficiency and that's his plan. That's amazing to me. Two quick implications of that that struck me. On one hand, that means 
offer what we have for Jesus' use, right? Don't use the excuse, it's insignificant. I'm not, I'm not that smart, I'm not that talented, I'm not that articulate, I'm not that, you know, uh, I don't have that much energy, I'm not an out, you know, extrovert, I'm not whatever. Well, what do you have? Well, of course, okay, that good, that's five, it's insufficient, great, now offer that, right? Offer that. Jesus isn't limited by it. In fact, he loves to work through the very things that we feel limit us, right? Say, that wasn't a limit to me. I just used that. I used your weakness to, to, to pull that off. On the other hand, this is where I was convicted. Let's also not boast in our five loaves and our two fish. I just, it just nailed me a couple of weeks ago. I was thinking about this and thinking how quickly I can move from, like preparing to preach, I can move from a moment of feeling like I have nothing, God, help me, help me be prepared in some way to encourage people through this. I got nothing here. And just feel like I'm totally insufficient. Who is sufficient for these things? And I can walk away at times going, nailed it, in my own head. You know, it's like the kid walking away with his lunch going, did you see what I just did? Like, that's just silly, right? <laughs> and we can go back and forth with that, feel totally insufficient, and then turn around in our pride and actually ascribe it to our five loaves and two fish, our little you know, insufficiency. And, and, and that's wrong, too. Jesus gets all the credit. He's not limited by our lack. We're slow to understand this, and I'm slow to get through our notes here, so let's move on here. <laughs> so that's it. He's, he's the good shepherd. He's compassionate, good shepherd, and he's not limited by what uh, we lack. In fact, that's his plan is to work through it. And then this next scene, we get one more, I think, lesson that's slow for us. And I'm going to say it like this. Jesus is Lord over painful headway. Painful headway is how Mark describes the disciples in this boat. Verse 45 Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, so it's like 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., it's like those last couple hours before the sun's going to come up, the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Again, totally understated. He just came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. That's odd. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out. That's, that's, they shrieked in terror is what they did. They all, all these 12 grown men shrieked in terror for they saw him. They were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. And they did not, oh, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. So Jesus, they're, they're out there struggling on the water. They're doing just what Jesus said. He, they're doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. You just go over ahead. And so they're doing it. They're just doing what Jesus told them to do. And they're rowing and rowing and rowing. John in his gospel said they rowed for three or four miles into the wind. I was picturing, my in-laws live in Morro Bay, right on the water, beautiful place. There's a trail that comes down and people launch kayaks right, right below their, their deck. And, uh, and one day I was sitting up there reading a book uh, in the living room and it's this really windy day. The wind's coming from Morro Rock south across the bay, straight toward our house, 
making white caps on the bay, coming up onto the shore, lapping up, and it's overcast and kind of drizzly. And I see these two women, bless their hearts, pulling these kayaks, dragging them down the trail. They are, their, their clothing told me they're visiting. They're on vacation, and they don't really get it, and they're just going <laughs> to kayak anyway. And they launch these two kayaks, and they paddle out like 50 feet from shore. And where I was sitting lined up with the corner of the window, and so I had like a guide to measure their progress. And for an hour... They just both did this. I didn't go anywhere. I put my book down. I was watching. Rather than going out and saying, stop, you know, they just, I watched for an hour. And finally, they just stopped and went, and went, and they just got out and they drug their things back up. And Jesus is, I, I picture this. Jesus is watching them from the land. And he can see them rowing into the wind, making painful headway. And notice something about this miracle. We had a storm on the sea already, miracle. There's something different here. The miracle here isn't that he calms the storm. That happens at the end when he gets in the boat, the winds cease. The miracle here is different. They're not fearing for their lives, so Jesus is going to go out and save them because they're perishing. They're not, doesn't say anything about them being afraid. They are just sucking wind, right? They're just getting nowhere. And Jesus set, decides to come out to them, and he comes out to them walking on the water. Walking on the sea. And look at verse 48 at the end. This is the, the, the strange little phrase in here. He meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. I was thinking, okay, is that sort of like my son Levi likes this game when, when we're in two cars in our family. He likes to go with me and then our, my daughter goes with Betsy and he wants me to take a different route and then speed. So we get to the house first <laughs> and then park in Betsy's spot because he thinks that's funny and sit in our two little plastic Adirondack chairs with our feet up like, hey, what took you so long? You know, when, when Betsy pulls out, he thinks that's the funniest thing. Did Jesus intend to pass them by unnoticed? I think he meant to be seen. It could be even that Mark is kind of hinting at, this is the same sort of language in the Old Testament that when God reveals his glory to Moses and it says he caused his glory to pass by Moses so that Moses got a glimpse of this God that he was dealing with or Elijah had a similar experience where God allowed some of his glory to pass by so that he could see. It could be that Mark's wanting us to see this and that Jesus has an intention here. He wants them to see that he is walking on the sea Passing them. I think that's the point of the miracle. In other words, I was thinking about, I like to run. I don't like to run, but I run because it's good for me. And, and one of the places I like to run, sometimes with Seth, we, we run on the courthouse trail. Up here, you start at Fullerton Courthouse, and you run up around Laguna Lake and back, part of the Fullerton Loop. Uh, but the th thing about that trail is that it's right by Fullerton High School. And so Fullerton Cross Country Team also runs there a lot, usually in the afternoon when I go run. And so this is a typical you know, afternoon for me. I've got my headphones on, and I'm a couple miles into it, head toward the lake at my 10-minute-a-mile pace, just sweating and trying to not, you know, get out of breath. And all of a sudden, I got my music on. The whole cross-country guys team will just, like, fly by me. Shirts off, washboard abs. They're talking. They got oxygen to spare. They're laughing and kicking at each other and, and just, like, blow past me like I'm, you know, and that's when I, I pull this move. I look at my watch and I pretend I'm just, I'm just cooling down right now. And, and they just, like, you know. I think something like this is going on. Like Jesus intends, as they are getting nowhere, he is going to just walk on the water past. The, the sea is under his feet, and he's going to pass them. And they entirely missed the point. 
That shows they still don't understand. Even if it maybe looked like kind of like Jesus, they're like, it couldn't be, right? And they freak out. It must be a ghost or a spirit of some kind. And so then he gets in the boat, and the winds cease, and they're utterly astonished. And Mark says the reason that their jaws were dropped and they couldn't believe what they just saw is because they still didn't understand the loaves. It just didn't compute. I think the point of this miracle is something like this. Painful headway to us is a stroll on the sea to Jesus in comparison. That his, his sovereignty over all the things that are painful and, 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 and we can't get move forward and we're just stuck that hinder us and hamper us in life are nothing to him. I think this miracle is very like the, the one just before. In the first one, they are utterly unable to feed these crowds. Jesus can feed these crowds. And then here, they're utterly unable to get to the other side. Jesus can walk there, right? But this is the crazy thing. Jesus is Lord over painful headway, over suffering, and anything um, that works against us. What's remarkable then is, is that by and large, Jesus just subjects himself to painful headway, right? We don't see him zipping across the water all the time, like, oh, it's just quicker this way, and, and making food out of thin air and stuff. No, that, that this is the exception. He wants them to know, I am Lord over painful headway, but all of his life is subjection to painful headway, isn't it? He's going to the cross. He knows painful headway. He chose painful headway. He's going to save us from our sins through painful headway. He is going to pray in the garden the night he's arrested. If, there, if there's any other way... Father, then this headway, please. But he says, not my will, but yours. And he goes through it. So if we get those two things and we really understand those two things, I think there's a couple of implications for us. One, in all our painful headway, whatever you'd fill in the blank in your life feels like painful headway or maybe just painful. Maybe it doesn't feel like headway because you're moving backwards. We should take those cares to Jesus in prayer. He is Lord over it. He hears our prayer. He answers prayer. At times, he intercedes and actually causes winds to cease in our life. He heals. He restores. He removes obstacles. He gives long sought after blessing. And so we should be encouraged to, to come to him and pray and cast our cares on him, knowing that, number one, is true. He's the compassionate good shepherd. He cares for us. But also... Maybe more importantly for us, when Jesus does not turn our painful head away into wind cease, this is reason that we can trust him. This is reason we can trust him. This is the, this is the question that, that struck me a week ago, is this, is our good shepherd is so acquainted with grief and suffering. He suffered more than we've suffered. Do we really think that a good shepherd that acquainted with grief and, and who knows the painfulness of pain like he does would then carelessly or unnecessarily use it, prescribe it for us in our life? He's sovereign over our suffering. I believe that. I was thinking about, you know, trying to imagine like a, an oncologist who had gone through the most severe chemotherapy and radiation treatment and every treatment himself or herself, then prescribing that for someone else, I would imagine that they wouldn't do it carelessly, right? They wouldn't just go, well, let's just try this out. Knowing the pain of it, you would say, okay, I will only do that if necessary, right? 
But if it's necessary, I'm going to do it. And I think the same sort of thing applies. Jesus is so acquainted with suffering, and he is our good shepherd, that we should trust that if he deems painful headway necessary, we should trust that that's not a strike against his compassion. He knows the painfulness of pain. And he's not asking us to do anything he hasn't done himself, right? So as we finish, Jesse's going to come up in a minute. We're going to close. I think the perfect song for us to respond with. Take a minute and be quiet and pray and turn this into prayer. Maybe it's along the lines of the first. Jesus is your compassionate good shepherd. How does that incline you this morning to pray? Why do you need to go to him and pray to him as that this morning? Or he's not limited by our lack. And he's Lord over our, our painful headway. Take a minute, pray, and then we'll close.